our brain doesn't deal in absolutes. It deals in relativity, right? So actually, we only need a little bit more information than we had before to already feel a little bit better about it. So helping people understand their brain, understand I'm feeling this way actually because my brain is designed this way and a part of me needs to start to experiment amongst change and uncertainty, start to explore because when there is no answer, it means that I can play a little bit here and perhaps create some of my future. Perfection equals disconnection. And so, you know, if you want to deconstruct that a little bit, leaders who feel that they have to be perfect then demand that their people have to be perfect. And that's that's one of the reasons why that old style creates a culture of fear, because there's no such thing as perfect. And then they end up, you know, blaming and shaming if they make a mistake. And then they all of a sudden create a culture where people feel like they can't speak up, they can't make mistakes, they can't take risks, and then you don't have an innovative cultures. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello, and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. Before we get into today's episode, uh, I have some breaking news. You may have already uh, had a hint of it if you listen very closely to last week's podcast, because you will have noticed, if you're very observant, that our usual halfway through advert for my books or some of the things that I do has changed. And that's because my new book, which is not due out until May of 2024, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. When I last checked, it was available for pre-order on Amazon UK, but not US, but it should follow there as well as other online book retailers. So if you want to be among the first, and I know if you did, because immediately we became number two in hot new releases in a couple of categories. If you want to make your commitment now and pre-order, then please do so. It all sends Amazon a nice message about us, and it means that you're going to get a nice early Christmas present arriving late. So that's the Financial Times Guide to Mentoring, which I wrote with Ruth Gottian, who's been Uh, a guest on this podcast on more than one occasion. I was a regular guest for quite a while in 2021, and that's coming out in May. So that's my quick bit of advertorial at the beginning. And now let's get into today's conversation. I actually met today's guest through Ruth. Ruth was in London a few weeks ago where we got the chance to meet in person for the first time, having written a book together. And Ruth was here for the Thinkers 50 Gala. Thinkers 50 is a collection of people who are considered amongst the top management thinkers in the world. And I met a lot of very interesting people, a number of whom are going to be appearing on the Connected Leadership Podcast, I'm pleased to say, over a couple of days at the beginning of that weekend, including the very wonderful Dr. Michelle Johnston. And I asked Michelle earlier in the week, how should I introduce you? Meaning, how can I position you for people listening so that they understand who you are before we go into it? And Michelle came up with my favorite answer ever to this question. She said, you can introduce me as Dr. Michelle Johnston, but then just call me Michelle. And I think that's the standard for all of us. You can just call me Andy, Michelle, by the way, once we we get into this. So let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Michelle 
Kay Johnson than that. She's a management professor and executive coach and a leadership expert who is the Clifton A. Morvan Distinguished Professor in Business at Loyola University in New Orleans. Her first book was published last year. And when I tell you the title of it, you'll understand why she is an absolutely natural guest for the Connected Leadership podcast and why Michelle and I are going to be talking a lot more than just on a podcast over the coming weeks, months, and years. The book is called The Seismic Shift in Leadership, How to Thrive in a New Era of Connection. So she's got both connection and leadership in the title, so she makes her a natural guest on the Connected Leadership podcast to talk about that seismic shift in leadership. Michelle, well, for the first time, Dr. Michelle, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, Andy, thank you so much. That was just such a lovely introduction. I was really, I've been looking forward to our conversation and hello out there to all of your listeners and thank you for tuning in. And, and I've been looking forward to, to this as well. We were just saying that we, we met each other on the Friday when you came uh, and recorded a video for us about your mentoring experiences and, and your perspectives of mentoring that will be publishing as as we get closer to the launch of the book we met again on the saturday night over dinner with a big group of us but we were sat at opposite ends of the table and it wasn't until after all of that that we both sat down and looked at each other's work and realized oh my god that's why we connected because we are so much on the same page with what we do so i've been looking forward to this as well i think not just it, what we talk about but the way we talk about it and the way we converse i just felt a natural connection there so thank you it's really good to catch up with Let's dive into this topic of the seismic shift in leadership and, and look at what you mean by that. And, and regular long-term listeners to the podcast will notice a pattern of things we've talked about over the years when I ask the first question, which is you claim that old leadership characteristics are becoming more obsolete. So can you explain what you mean by that, why it's happening and what you're actually seeing? Yeah, I think for years and years, and I'm sure you have too, since we're both kind of semi-obsessed with connection and connected leadership, is I spend so much time trying to figure out why the old model of that authoritarian, aggressive, results at any cost, why that model not only existed, but was tolerated for so long. Because it really was. And, and, you know, I grew up with it and I just thought that was what leadership was. And, and I really revered and respected the leaders who I worked under who were like military drill sergeants. And, and again, I just thought that's what it was. And so it wasn't until I was an executive coach on the front lines looking at which styles of leadership were effective and getting rewarded and promoted and which were getting pushed out of the organization. And that's when I had my big aha moment, Andy, because this particular company, I was coaching about 15 leaders at the time. So I really got to see what was happening with culture, what was happening with the performance appraisals, and who, again, was getting promoted. And I was seeing these top-notch leaders who had been revered getting pushed out. And, and I actually had an opportunity to conduct a focus group with the followers of one of the leaders with the direct reports to try to figure out because the CEO said, look, this guy's really great, Michelle, figure out what's going on. And so I was able to conduct a focus group and the results were startling, Andy. His command and control, aggressive, authoritarian leadership style had 
ended up producing, creating a culture of fear. And these employees were were having negative health effects by it, unbelievable stress, burnout, anxiety, ticks, not eating. I mean, it was unbelievable because he would shame them on calls. He would expect the impossible. He would expect perfection when it doesn't exist. And so this whole culture of shame and blame, which resulted in fear, just had dire consequences for his people. So I went back to the CEO and I told him, and he really struggled and said, my gosh, but look at the results of this guy. I said, I know, but if you keep a leader like this, I said, look at your values. Your values are about compassion and teamwork. And he goes against those values. He creates, because of his culture of fear, he creates a competitive environment of one on his team competing with the other. This is not teamwork and this is not compassion. And so he ended up letting him go. And I was really proud of the CEO. But honestly, Andy, that was my big aha moment that all of a sudden the younger generation And it wasn't in these people, his direct reports weren't all young, but there was, and that's what I've been trying to, that's what keeps me up at night is what exactly caused the seismic shift? Was it just the young generation? Not exactly. Was it that people were just fed up with being treated poorly? And this was before the pandemic. And so that's when I I wrote the book before the pandemic, all about the seismic shift, that that old style command, control, authoritarian, aggressive jerk boss no longer is going to work. It's not going to be tolerated. And so you got to shift. And then the pandemic happened. It's interesting that you mentioned the military major, sergeant major approach, because I think there is a perception that the military is still very much command and control. I've spoken to a number of current and former military leaders on the podcast, and they've been unanimous in saying, well, actually, it's not like that at all now. So the military, certainly in the UK, but I've also spoken to US military leaders on the podcast. So I don't think it is unique to the UK. I I think the military has moved and modernized to a flatter structure and, and more inclusive, vulnerable leadership. Are there certain sectors where you see this playing out more than others? And are there sectors where you have seen a real transition away from command and control? Yeah, and and Andy, you're absolutely right. Yeah, one of my colleagues that I work with, he's another executive coach, and, and we do a lot of facilitation together. He's a West Point grad. He's a former military guy who jumped out of airplanes And he has a Harvard MBA, and he still goes back and teaches at West Point. And when I wrote this book and we started talking about it, he said, Michelle, even the military is changing. So you are absolutely right. Even the military. Now, it's still, he says, super hierarchical and super bureaucratic, and it almost has to be. It's so good at processes, efficiencies. What has changed is that expectation that each leader has to put on a mask of perfection and and demand perfection because that's what I've learned, Andy, that perfection equals disconnection. And so, you know, if you want to deconstruct that a little bit, leaders who who feel that they have to be perfect, then demand that their people have to be perfect. And that's that's one of the reasons why that old style creates a culture of fear, because there's no such thing as perfect. And then they end up, you know, blaming and shaming if they make a mistake. And then they all of a sudden create a culture where people feel like they can't speak up, they can't make mistakes, they can't 
take risks and then you don't have an innovative culture. So I think that's also one of the reasons why. But going back to your initial question of are there industries that I've seen, um, I'll never forget. I have a podcast as well. It's called The Seismic Shift. And I had a, a CEO who was in the process of, of selling his company because he had built such an amazing company. And his whole culture, he said, was built on happiness. And I said, Larry Kloss, tell me about happiness. You built a culture on happiness? He goes, first, let's back up, Michelle. He said, I need everybody to know who's listening that I was that hard-charging type A personality leader. He said, I insulated my office walls so that people wouldn't hear me yelling. He said, it was bad. He said, but I got results, but I ended up miserable and I realized it was not good for those around me. He said, so that's when I decided I needed to change. And I wanted to have a, a culture where people were actually happy. So our meetings were based on happiness and gratitude. We didn't talk about, we, we had a spreadsheet where they had to put in their results, but we began each meeting with gratitude and appreciation. We had happiness summits. We had happiness meetings. I said, okay, Larry, I said, for those who are listening on this call, they're going to say, well, this must be industry specific. There's no way that I could have in the line of work I do have a culture that, that focuses on happiness. I said, so you could, can you tell everybody what your line of work is? What is your industry? And Larry said, construction. <laughs> and I said, there you go. No further questions, right? So I really, I think it is just across the board what the seismic shift you and I are seeing is that it's all about connected leadership, that the power is no longer about using your authority and control. Power in a leader now is about meaningful relationships and how to really find connection, not only between you and one-on-one -on -one with your people, but creating a connected team, creating that trust and safety so that you can be innovative. And so I believe that connection drives results no matter what industry you're in. There's actually a training company in London called Happy. And actually, maybe I should get the CEO of that. He's a very, very bright guy and very interesting guy. Maybe I should get him onto the podcast as well and talk about happiness from his perspective. You mentioned earlier the you, you said that not you're talking about the leader that eventually got fired because he had the command and control approach. You mentioned that not all of his team were young people because one of the obvious questions to ask is about the generational differences of expectation. I want to look at the question of creating a connected leadership style from the other angle and doing so by bringing in three areas that I often ask as individual questions when we're looking at something like this. And that is where differences lie in terms of generational differences, cultural differences, and gender differences. So, for example, I joined the workplace from university in 1990. I know I don't look old enough. And I would love to say I was a child prodigy, but unfortunately not. Back in 19, and I joined the civil service in the UK. Now, the civil service in the UK, probably similar to the public service in the States, back then it was a job for life. It was very hierarchical, particularly the department and the office I joined. Everything was on grades, you know, the, the level of seniority you were, and it was pure command and control. There wasn't any of any of this connected leadership that, that we're talking about. I, I don't really think I'm safe saying that. And that was the expectation. To what degree has the expectation shifted? And to what degree do cultural, generational, and gender differences allow space for connection. So, for example, 
if I was to take Southeast Asia as a culture, I would imagine it would be harder to create that connection for a more inclusive leadership style in a culture where people look to the hierarchy for leadership. Whereas in the West, we probably force it from below, so to speak. So how do those differences play in creating the space for someone to become a connected Yeah, I saw it play out in one of the leaders that I coached. He was an introvert, but really enjoyed people, really cared about his people, and was action. So I have this assessment called the Communication Preference Profile, and it's super quick and easy, 25 items, and it categorizes you. Are you a high people communicator? Are you a high action communicator? Are you high content or high technology? And to me, that's the way that the kind of the lens that I see the world is what type of communicator are you and, and how do you connect with your people? So he was high people, high action. And, and he was new to this huge healthcare system. And he said, gosh, Michelle, everybody, all the leaders that I see, they're very old school and they just want to hear themselves talk. He said, I really want to create a different type of environment for my team. So because I was his executive coach, this was, again, pre-COVID, I got to be in all of his team meetings and got to see his action, his leadership in action. And what he did is he switched the the paradigm of kind of a leader, 80% talking and directing and and 20% listening. He, he turned that upside down. And so he went into his meetings and he began by going around and saying, how are you doing on a scale of one to 10, really? kind of like you and I talked about, like he really wanted to know how are you on a scale of one to 10 and why? And he wanted to know personally and he wanted to know professionally. And some people on his team rolled his eyes right in front of him and said, oh gosh, not this again, because they just didn't feel comfortable revealing. And he kept pressing on. And for years he did that. He began by getting to know them at a deeper level, creating trust amongst the team members and and allowing them to lead the meeting. And the very end, 20% of the time, he would talk. So we also did that for his presentations as well, his big executive presentations. They weren't just all him up there, just data, 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 data directing. He began with a, a, a patient story. It's a, it's a hospital system. He would begin with a patient story or he would begin with a, a story about himself. And then at the very end, he would have a call to action, but a very different style of communicating. So what he was doing was he was modeling the way by saying, you know what, it doesn't have to be like it used to be, all hierarchical and me just giving orders and directing. I want to kind of flatten the structure. I want to create a much more team-based approach in our decision-making, and I want you all to feel safe. Ergo, then I want us to be as innovative as possible because he'd led many of the most innovative divisions in the company. And I'll never forget this time, Andy, where he stood up in front of thousands of employees and he began with a story of how he made a very bad decision and lost the company $25 million. And he said, I'm doing that because I need you to know I feel so lucky that I still have my job and I'm up standing in front of you. I'm not telling you that I'm going to support everybody going out making $25 million mistakes, but I need you to know that I'm counting on you all to continuously improve and to find ways that we can be better. I don't want you all just to look at the leaders in this company. So he was pushing down the decision-making. He was pushing down more of the control to the people. And at that time, he was just an executive. And then the CEO left 
And then the board voted him in. And he's the new CEO of this 40,000 person company. And I do believe, Andy, it's because he created this more of a flattened structure that was more team based. It was more listening rather than talking, creating a safe environment where people speak up and drive innovation. And it worked. It's working. It's really quite beautiful. There's a couple of things I want to uh, ask you about that. So I'm going to ask you one at a time because I have a habit of wrapping questions together too much. Earlier on, in a couple of your answers, actually, you talked about leaders expecting perfection and that being one of the big challenges that nobody can be perfect and leaders are expecting perfection. You finish that story by talking about this leader standing up and saying, this is the big mistake that I made. How important was that vulnerability? in creating that connection with the team? How important is it for a leader to, to, to do that, maintain the respect, but get people on the journey with them? Huge, because I remember the leader that I referred to the first time, he expected perfection of himself and, and therefore expected of his people. I had talks with this leader. So this is not the leader who stood up and said, I made a $25 million mistake. This is the leader that really created a culture of fear. And I would have talks with him. I'd say, you know what? Why don't you stand up in front of your people? And if you want them to be innovative and to take risks, then tell about a time where you failed and he just couldn't do it. And if he ever did it, it came across kind of as fake because then the next call on Zoom, he would be yelling at somebody because they got a number wrong in a cell, in an Excel spreadsheet. So you have to write, walk the talk and model the way. So now going to the leader, who's now the CEO, who stood up and said, I made a $25 million mistake. That was huge because at that time, leaders did not admit mistakes at all, especially on a public stage. That was just not common. And and I think that really moved the needle at that moment for the culture So yeah, I've done a lot of research on perfection and connection. So you and I both understand and appreciate the importance of connection. Connection starts with yourself. So if you're a leader who demands perfection in yourself, then you're going to demand perfection in others, which means that you're not connected with yourself. So you're walking in, putting on a mask of perfection. And, And I really do believe that one of the blessings of the pandemic was we realized because we're all now on Zoom calls still, and that's not going to go away, all of a sudden you're in our living room. You're in my what used to be my daughter's playroom, and now she's at college, and so it's my office, right? You're, you're in each other's homes, and you would hear dogs barking, and you would hear UPS men or, or postal people at the door, and telephones ringing, and spouses and children, and all of a sudden you, it was impossible to be perfect, to curate this portrayal, right, or to portray that I have my entire life together and packaged with a bow. And that was really, I think, a beautiful moment for all of us to say, we can't separate work and life. It's now called life. It's just life. And we have to figure out how we show up as authentic people and how we allow others to be authentic and real, because that's where meaningful connection comes in. If you're truly curating this life and putting it out there on social media and putting it out there whenever you show up for Zoom call that you're perfect, right? Then that creates a wall 
And that's what I mean by perfection equals disconnection. You've got a wall up. So my, my goal in working with anybody or, or hopefully those listening is, you know, tear down those walls, right? Is just be real, be authentic, be honest. That's where trust comes into play. That's where psychological safety comes into play. And then all of a sudden you can have connection, but it starts with yourself. Create a greater impact as a mentor. Discover how to find the right person to mentor you and make sure that mentoring thrives in your organization with the Financial Times Guide to Mentoring. Andy Lapata and Dr. Ruth Gotian's new book comes out in May and is available to pre-order now. There's a study that I've quoted in, in two of my books and, and may have quoted on the podcast before, I'm not sure, Harvard Business School study where they looked at the impact of vulnerability on how people respond to your message. So there were a series of experiments. And the final one was, we would call it Dragon's Den. I think you call it Shark Tank, a Shark Tank style presentation where someone would pitch their business and they would pitch it in two scenarios. In the first scenario, they would only talk about their successes and they'd talk about how brilliant the business was, their growth, everything, all the impact they've made, everything positive, positive, positive. In the second experiment or the second context, they would give the same pitch, the same successes, but they would build in on the journey, on the way, the story of all the challenges and all the failures along the way. And they measure two types of envy. Malicious envy, I want you to fail, and benign envy, I want to be like you. And it won't surprise you to know that the original context with only successes, there were high levels of malicious envy. The second with the same pitch, but with the failures on the way built in, high levels of benign envy. So it really backs up what you say. So getting that connection through leaders is key. Oh, that is such a cool study. I'm, I'm not familiar with that. I love it. And yeah, you're absolutely right, Andy. You can just see the leaders who get up, who just talk all about their successes, their successes. People are like, really, who are you? And and then they demand that of others. And then it just creates this artificial environment and you're not going to get the best out of your people. I just saw on LinkedIn last night, a Harvard Business Review article about all of the reasons and the stats that support creating a positive culture. You know, so many leaders, that's a chapter in my book is how do you connect with your team? How do you connect with your organization? You intentionally do whatever it takes to create a positive work culture. And you really have to prioritize that as a leader. And so many leaders are like, oh, it's either going to happen or it's not going to happen. No. I mean, it's kind of on you. You've got to figure it out. One of the, the leaders in my book is Todd Graves. I don't know if you in London yet have what's called Raising Cane's Chicken. And they're now global. They're all over the place. And it's a $3.3 billion company. And he just started out as a competitor of fast food places like, like Wendy's and Popeye's and McDonald's and Burger King. All he sold were chicken fingers. And he said, and he's our age, Andy. And, and he said, Michelle, he said, when I opened it up, I knew I had a great product because I worked for this company that's, that did it when I was in college called Guthrie's, but they wouldn't sell to me and they wouldn't allow me to franchise. So I knew I had a great product because I saw the lines around the street. So I knew with the product. He said, but I wanted to create a fun environment where people wanted to come to work and they weren't in polyester uniforms and there was cool, fun music and they got to laugh and they got to be a part of decision making. And, and Todd turned that fast food industry upside down. And he is crushing it all because he said his goal 
very intentional was to create a positive work culture. So I think that is one of the ways and one of the imperatives you as a leader, anybody listening, if you want to be a better leader, more connected leader, create a real positive culture for your people. And, and picking up on that, and I'm aware that there's another question that I had based on, on your previous answer, but just want to pick up on that that positive culture because bringing together that vulnerability that we were just talking about and that positive culture where people want to come into work. One of the things we haven't talked about as much on, on the Connected Leadership podcast is judgment uh, and, and a lack of judgment. And surely that vulnerability comes from a safe space where people won't feel judged. They'll feel heard and listened to. So that has to be a part of that culture, doesn't it? Where you're really going to create connection amongst your team. Yes. And, and I've, I've put a lot of thought into, uh, this is a thing that I use a lot in coaching is assume positive intent. And I've thought long and hard, why do we as humans not assume positive intent? Or we can, we can say it, but it's really hard for us to do because humans, unfortunately, assume the worst when we're not given a lot of information. So there is a lot of judgment out there when you're not presented with information. I'll give you an example. So I was on a, I'm not kidding when I say this, Andy, this is not a Zoom best practice. I was on an eight hour Zoom that was conducted by a company that I guess they thought that they could just treat meetings like like they were still in person, even though we're on Zoom. It was absolutely bizarre and it was a bad practice. However, I was a dutiful member of this committee that I was on and we were electing an executive. And so I stayed on the Zoom for eight hours with my camera on as engaged as I possibly could be because that's how you stay connected and engage with your camera on and you're participating. Well, this one really high level person never had her camera on and never said a word until the eighth hour. And we were all debriefing. We're vetting all these candidates for this position And she finally said, didn't turn her camera on, but she's finally said, I just wanted y'all to know I'm terribly sick. And so I've had my camera off and that's why I haven't been talking, but here are my opinions. And I thought to myself, if she had only told us in the very beginning, at least in a chat, look, I'm here. I can't have my camera on. It would horrify you all because I'm sick in bed, but I'm going to do my best to be as engaged as possible. Then we would not have assumed the worst. But even me, Andy, this is what I do for a living is I try to be connected. I try to assume positive. And even me in my head was like, who does she think she is? She just sits there and not as she's not even engaged for eight hours. I thought, oh my goodness. But the point is the onus is on the leader, the leader to share information, to be honest, to always explain the why, to tell your story. And, and when I say leader, it really can be us as humans. And, I, and I've had some of my friends who've read my book. They said, you know, Michelle, I read the book because I wanted to be, I'm your friend, but I'm not a leader. And your title is The Seismic Shift in Leadership. They said, I really wish it was kind of the seismic shift because this is for all humans. This is not just for leaders, right? As a human, to be the best version of yourself and to garner trust in others, it's show up authentically, tell your story, explain the why, be a professional, of course. But the more information you give about the context, the situation, the less people are going to assume negative thoughts about negative judgment about you. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say about it being for everyone, but I find it a lot with what I do, talking about professional relationships. There's a huge crossover with personal relationships as well. And, and you talk about assuming the worst. 
I had an experience very recently where I was going to see someone uh, after that person hadn't replied to several WhatsApp at a time of a, of great, a, a very, how do I put this, a very contentious period, a very difficult period for me. And she hadn't replied to WhatsApp. Uh, she happens to be really bad on WhatsApp, but I had assumed the worst because of everything that had been going on at that point. And I was dreading seeing her at this event. And when she saw me, she went, Andy, how are you? I didn't reply to your message. And it was just the fact she was bad at replying on WhatsApp. I did a, a, a development program a few years ago, a guy called Beju Solanke who's been on the podcast. And Beju said, in fact, it, it actually predates Beju to, to Landmark program where they said nothing has any meaning other than the meaning we, we attach to it, particularly when it comes to other people. So when your colleague was on that call with the camera off and not contributing, you attached a meaning to that. But that wasn't the meaning. It was the meaning you attached. And we do that in our personal lives. We do that in our professional lives all the time. And, and the classic example is actually, you know, we're both speakers. We both speak at events. There will always be someone in the audience who looks like they are hating every second of your talk. Their eyes are closed. They've got um, resting you-know-what face. They look like they are chewing on the sourest sour sweet you've ever seen, sucking a lemon. And then they come up to you at the end and say, I love that. And it was just their listening style. <laughs> but in your head the whole time, you're saying this isn't landing with them. Andy, you are so right. So remember I had uh, referenced earlier the communication preference profile and it categor yeah. categorizes people into uh, high people, action, content, technology. So after I gathered all of the data, ran the statistics and the instrument was valid and reliable. Then I conducted focus groups with each category to try to explore a little bit more. Like, tell me, why do you do what you do? How do you listen? How do you speak? And it was the high content communicators. They're the ones who are driven by information. And so when they sit and they listen, because they're not driven by relationships, they don't put a smile on their faces to make you feel better. Because they're not driven by action, they're not thinking and listening to the bottom line. They're driven by information. So they're processing all of the research and the data because that's what they love and they want to make sure you're credible. So those communicators are the ones in the audience, you're absolutely right, who just do not have a smile on their face because they're processing the information. And then you're right. If they do like you, they will come up, maybe, maybe not. But they will tell you, I really valued what you said in that information. It's They won't say, I liked you. They'll say, I valued the content that you provided. I find all that fascinating because when we're connecting with others, we're driven by different things. So I'm high people and high action. So I love connecting and finding commonality in the beginning. And then I want to like get to the bottom line. Tell me what we need to do. Let's go after it. I love accomplishing things. And, and then, you know, others like high technology communicators, they really don't want, they don't necessarily care about finding commonality. They're driven by efficiency. So they just want to get it done really on their phones. Please, let's not have a face-to-face -face meeting. And if we're on Zoom, please don't make me turn my cameras on. <laughs> so I think just understanding how all these different categories of communicators come into the world. And, and that's why diversity pays off, right? In any given meeting, we need the high people person to come 
kind of bring us together and show that that we care and focus a little bit on something that's not business. And then we need the high action to keep us on the agenda and accomplishing our tasks. We need the high content because we got to have the right research and the data to support our decisions. And then we need the technology because, quite frankly, the technology is only going to continue to advance. That's one of the things that Thinkers 50, Andy, that I really learned that no matter how fast this high-speed technology train is moving, and it is the highest speed train we've ever seen in our lives, at the end of the day, what really matters is how to humanize business. I love that. Let's let's go back, because I said I had two questions. and Once I say it, I never let it drop. Going back to your client who decided to change the whole style, create a flatter structure, became the CEO, you said initially that he changed the style and he may have been greeted with some cynicism or skepticism from from the team. Uh, And that was one of the things I wanted to ask about, is that when you have a shift in leadership style and you have a shift from potentially command and control to a more inclusive style, it's not going to bed in overnight, is it? Because you've got expectations there and skepticism and cynicism that are built in. So taking a couple of things that you've talked about. So since I was originally going to ask the question, you said a few other things that sort of perhaps feed into it. Number one, we, we assume the worst when we're not given enough information. So giving the information is behavior over a period of time consistently allows people to change. And the second thing is what you've just talked about, which is the different styles of people. So how are different people, depending on their style, going to respond to a change in behavior from that? I'm blown away that you asked that question because you're incredibly intuitive, Andy. This particular leader that I keep talking about, who's now the CEO and who's doing things differently than any former leader, is getting pushback. And he is quite surprised by how many people have told him, yeah, but at the end of the day, we kind of just want to be told what to do. And he said, no, 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 but let's create a, a more of a team-based approach. And I want you to be a part of the decision-making and you don't have to go to your leader for everything. And I'm pushing down that that power. And it's been tough. He's only been on the job for one year. He just celebrated his year anniversary. And if we were to interview him, he would say the pushback has been more than he thought it would be. He didn't realize how many people at the end of the day, certain personalities just really want to be told what to do. But he believes passionately that this is the way that a culture should go, should move in the seismic shift in order to truly drive innovation, that the power really should be pushed down to the people and it should be a shared decision-making matrix, a shared model, totally collaborative. He believes in it and he's going to continue forging the way. But let me tell you, it has been tough. And a lot of the people who really enjoyed working for those old command and control leaders have left. Mm. So, so any shifting culture is going to see some collateral damage along the way, isn't it? Correct. You're going to see what, and and again, we can't fault people. Self-awareness is the most important thing. And if some of these leaders are like, you know what? I just really would rather work under a leader like that who just tells me what to do and I don't really have to think and and then I go do it and I implement and I'm really good at execution. I'm going to go work for somebody like that. And so that is what happened. But in that year, he has now put together a really great executive group, executive team 
who espouses the characteristics that he's looking for, which is that shared decision-making, collaborative spirit, more leaning in as a leader who cares about each person on the team and is not super competitive with each other. I mean, he inherited, because of the former leader, a very competitive, fearful team. So it's taken him a while to figure that out. Okay, I could dig into this, even just this one case study, so much more. I think there's so much within that. Maybe that's for another time. Just as we're coming towards the end of the podcast, I know that you've got a three-step process for leaders to to connect and drive results. So it will be great to uh, ask you to share that with Yeah. So my framework is, as we've talked about, it starts with yourself. So you can't just as a leader dive in and say, okay, I want to connect our team. I want to be better because probably a leader listening to this call has received some sort of feedback in your annual performance appraisal that maybe you could do a better job building your team. And you might want to just dive in and say, I just want to work on my team. But in order to do that, you have to work on yourself. So the three-step process is you have to connect with yourself first in order to successfully connect with your team, in order to successfully connect with your organization. So it starts with you owning your story and really owning kind of your childhood, how you were brought up, how you were raised, and then your leadership journey. What were the bosses you liked, the bosses you hate, hated? What were the significant life events that affected you as a leader? And really owning your story, where you came from, why you are, who you are today. That is the number one step in owning your story. Then it's owning your communication. As we talked about, are you a high people person? Whenever I coach high people, I say, this is a beautiful skill and make sure that you have somebody timing you on your meetings that after 10 minutes, you now know that you've already talked about the big football weekend and now it's time to accomplish the agenda items or your high action. And I had to coach a bunch of high action communicators that refused to begin meetings, even asking how their people were doing or how their weekend was. And now we have to embed kind of an if then sequence, like I know you want to accomplish your goals and you're getting rewarded for accomplishing your goals and you have to ask about your people. So in any case, it's owning who you are as a communicator so that you can build the right team around you, a a diverse team, and so that your meetings can reflect the high people, the high action, the high content, high technology. So then you move into connection with your team. Then you have to embed these connection moments in all of your meetings. So say that you're a leader and all of your people work remotely. You're going to have to really go to bat for the resources to do offsites once a quarter. That's what we're all advocating now is even if you have a remote workforce, we have got to see each other in person. That's where real trust happens. That's where real innovation happens. We've got to meet in person. So you've got to figure out how to invest those dollars to bring your people together once a quarter so that you can build this team connection. And then you have to think about how you're using your virtual calls. Are you embedding a connection question in there? Are you using the breakout rooms? Again, I want your listeners, if there's one thing I want them to take away is how we're conducting business virtually cannot be the same as how we conducted face-to-face. We've got to rethink. And that's what I'm advocating too. Rethink everything. Everything's been turned upside down. We are trying to show up as the best version of ourselves, right? So how do you do that with your everyday case? 
cadence, your rhythm, your calendar, your schedule? Are you meeting with the right people you should be meeting with? How long? Is it the right time? Is it the right format? I'll give you a great example of this because this is all connection with your team. I have an incredible leader who's done a lot of growth and self-awareness. And she realized, she goes, she has eight people on her team and she has about a thousand people under her. And she said, I realized my eight people, the one-on-ones I have virtually, I scheduled them for an hour every other week. And I realized, wait, the one-on-ones are supposed to be for them. So why don't I ask them what they want? She said, Michelle, it was crazy. Every single person wanted something different. And so one one wants to meet with me face-to-face at a coffee shop because she never gets to see me anymore. Another one said, I only need to talk to you on the telephone once a month. We're good. She said, I realized that, again, that's a part of kind of giving up that command and control. It's not about just what the leader wants. It's about how can I best connect with my teammates and what they want. So that's connection with your team. It's talking less and listening more. It's showing up as a servant leader. And then when you move into connection with the organization, it's owning your cadence, your calendar, making sure that you have the right meetings with the right people in the right format to get what you need to be successful. And then ultimately, on top of all of that, the bow on top of this whole framework is building a positive culture. Love it. I love it. You've, you've got me thinking about a, a senior leader that I know that we did talk about doing some work together. And he said to me, he puts time in his diary every week for people on the team to come up and talk to him and book his time. No one ever does it. Uh, And he realized that, you know, maybe they're not used to the leader asking them for their opinion, but also there's that element of maybe he's not presenting it in a way that works for them in the way that they want to share. And I think that's a really important point as well. Michelle, we could chat for hours. I'm sure we will do over time, but this has been really enjoyable. And as per fairly frequent uh, occurrence, I haven't asked half of the questions or more of the ones I actually thought I would. We've gone in a different direction because it's just been fascinating. That to me is always a sign of a good podcast because it writes itself. And, and I think that's that we've done that today. So thank you so much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Oh, Andy, you're such a pleasure, such a joy to connect with. I mean, that was a true pleasure. Thank you. You're an incredible host. Your podcast is just full of really cool, insightful information. Thank you so much for having me on Connected Leadership. Thank you so much, Michelle. So thanks again to Michelle for, for joining me. As I said, we went in a completely different direction. There were so many other questions I didn't, but I think there's some real food for thought there. What Michelle's really brought to the table is that if we are going to shift this leadership approach and move to this connected leadership model, we need to have some intentionality around it, really be focused on what we're trying to do and keep it top of mind because you're going to get those setbacks along the way. So you have to keep reminding yourself why you're trying to do it. That culture that that Michelle mentioned at the very end, we need to embed that into the culture uh, and make sure people understand what to expect and, and the that they can participate in it. So it needs to take place over time and you need to be consistent in your approach for that to happen. And then I I delivered a talk recently where I was talking about the importance of being strategic in connecting. And I know people feel uncomfortable with that word. And for the first time, and I've given this talk so many times, I've written a book on this topic, but the first time I said, if you're not comfortable with the word strategic, 
use the word thoughtful. And when Michelle talked about, you know, thinking about whether you're using your meeting in person or online and the differences, thinking about the individual needs of people and how they engage with you, that's thoughtful connection. Uh, I don't know that I'm in the place to invent a whole new world word for what I do, um, but I think thoughtful connection really works where strategic may feel uncomfortable. Um, but this is all about being thoughtful as well. So again, thanks to Michelle for joining me. I hope that you found that interesting uh, and, and useful. We will have one more uh, live episode before the Christmas break, and that will be one of uh, Michelle's Thinker 50 colleagues, Kirsten Ferguson, who's joining me on next week's Connected Leadership podcast, a, a phenomenal leader from Australia who's worked at the very highest level there and internationally. So look out for that. We'll then be going into Connected Leadership Gold, some of the great interviews from the archive from the last three years to see us over the new year period. And we'll be back with a host of new guests in January. But stay with us because there's a lot more to come on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.